Welcome to episode one of this four-part Oxford Sparks podcast series, Vaccines, from Concept to Clinic. My name is Dr. Sean Elias from the Jenner Institute, University of Oxford, and along with a number of colleagues, I hope to introduce you to some of the work we perform at the Jenner Institute in the development of new innovative vaccines. To begin with, however, I'd like to introduce you to the history of vaccination and the basic science behind how vaccination works to protect both you, the individual, and the population in which you live. I will also discuss some of the common misconceptions associated with vaccination and why these can lead to dangerous outbreaks of infectious disease. Edward Jenner is commonly referred to as the father of vaccination for his work on the development of the world's first vaccine against smallpox, and it is he whom the Jenner Institute I work at is named after. So how did Jenner come up with the idea for vaccination? At the time of his discovery, smallpox was rife. The disease, characterised by large blisters covering the body, killed 35% of those infected and left many survivors scarred for life. Jenner made the observation that milkmaids who had been exposed to cowpox, a less virulent relative of smallpox, were protected against infection from smallpox. He proposed a hypothesis that inoculation of pus from cowpox blisters to a non-exposed individual would cause them to develop cowpox, but subsequently protect them from smallpox. It is worth noting that this idea of transfer of infectious material was not new. Variolation, a precursor to vaccination, originating in the Middle East and China, involved rubbing infected smallpox scabs or fluid into superficial scratches to induce immunity. This was used around Europe prior to Jenner's discovery, but was highly risky. To test his hypothesis, Jenner inoculated his gardener's son, James Phipps, with cowpox, and after the symptoms of this infection cleared, he performed variolation using smallpox material. While this was not exactly ethical science, James survived this smallpox exposure and even subsequent exposures, as did a number of other subjects, proving Jenner's hypothesis correct and ultimately paving the way for the technique to be deployed both nationally and internationally. To distinguish this new method from variolation, the term vaccination was coined from the Greek vaca, meaning cow. Jenner's work paved the way for the subsequent eradication of the smallpox virus, and the techniques developed have been subsequently applied to the development of vaccines against many of the world's most deadly infectious diseases. If you are interested in learning more about the work of Edward Jenner, you can visit his house in Berkeley, Gloucestershire, which is now a museum in honour of his work. So how did Jenner's cowpox vaccine work to protect the individuals against smallpox? Well, first we need to look at how the immune system responds to infection. When an individual is vaccinated with cowpox, their immune system recognises protein antigens on the surface of the virus. Specialised cells, called B-cells, start producing neutralising antibodies that recognise these protein antigens and inhibit virus replication in the host. There are a number of mechanisms by which antibodies can achieve this, including blocking virus entry into cells, or increasing the efficiency by which other cells of the immune system can clear the virus. Gradually, the infection is cleared, but the individual retains immunological memory of the virus, so it can clear subsequent infections. Antibody memory comes from two different populations. The first comes from specialised B cells that reside in the bone marrow and continue to secrete antibody into our blood long after the infection is cleared. The second comes from memory B cells, which circulate in the blood in a resting state and can respond rapidly to new infection, 
producing antibodies secreting B cells at the sites of infection. In the case of smallpox, the protein antigens of the virus are similar enough to those on cowpox that the immune cells and antibodies that were formed following the cowpox infection can prevent subsequent smallpox infections. Jenner's smallpox vaccine and its subsequent improved forms were highly effective at protecting vaccinated individuals. However, this individual protection can also contribute to population-level protection, known as herd immunity, when enough people in a population are vaccinated. To understand how this works, we need to look at the basic replication number of a disease, known as its R0 value. This describes for any case of infection how many subsequent infections theoretically might derive in an unprotected population. Smallpox, for example, has an R0 of 4 to 7, meaning for every one case, 4 to 7 more individuals may catch the disease. Vaccination of a population effectively reduces the R0 by blocking transmission, and if the R0 value drops below 1 and is maintained at this level, a disease can be eliminated, assuming there is not a reservoir of the disease outside the human population. To achieve an R0 of below 1, you don't actually need to vaccinate everyone, meaning that those who cannot be vaccinated, very young children or immunocompromised individuals, can be protected by herd immunity. For smallpox, the combination of governmental policy worldwide, either promoting vaccination or making it mandatory, helped lead to an eradication of smallpox officially in 1980. Modern vaccination schedules have been devised to maximise effectiveness in different age groups, taking into account relative risk and exposure. Many we receive as a series of vaccines in the first few months of life, including diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis and polio. In contrast, influenza vaccines are typically given to more elderly individuals, but also those with certain medical conditions that may increase their risk of infection. Some vaccines against diseases such as Japanese bee encephalitis, yellow fever and rabies are only given to those living in endemic countries or to visitors travelling to those countries. Others, such as hepatitis B, are commonly given to health workers and those who work with human blood, such as doctors or researchers such as myself. There are even vaccines that can protect against cancer, including the vaccine now routinely given to 12 to 13 year old girls, which protects against a virus that can lead to cervical cancer. These diseases have been controlled by vaccination campaigns around the world, with many effectively eradicated in a number of countries. However, that final step of world eradication has not yet been achieved for these diseases, and in the final part of this episode I will discuss why this is. We will start with polio. Caused by the polio virus and spread by faecal-oral route, this disease is largely asymptomatic in 90-95% of cases. However, it can cause paralysis in around 1% of cases. The development and widespread use of the polio virus vaccine in the 1950s saw a dramatic decline in cases, and in 1988, a global effort to eradicate the disease began. As of 2013, polio remained endemic in only three countries, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. In these countries, the main reason for the disease's continued presence is a distrust of Western medicine, perhaps through lack of education, but also from the spread of anti-vaccine conspiracy theories often used to inflame anti-American or UN hostility in war zones. In fact, war in general can have a huge effect on the revival of such diseases. Vaccination programs are easily disrupted, 
and in combination with low sanitary conditions and population clustering in refugee camps, outbreaks are commonplace. Recent cases of polio re-emergence in Syria are a good case in point. The second example I'd like to discuss is measles. Measles is a highly infectious and deadly virus, with an R0 as high as 18. There is an effective vaccine for measles, typically given at 12 months, in combination with mumps and rubella, as part of the MMR vaccine. The reason why the vaccine is given at 12 months and not earlier is that the immune system is immature before this point and cannot effectively produce a protective response. This means that a large number of children are unprotected until they reach this age and are therefore reliant on herd immunity for protection. In combination with the high R0 value for the measles, this disease requires a large proportion of the population to be vaccinated to provide herd immunity. Any drop in vaccination rates therefore can cause rapid outbreaks and re-emergence of the disease. Unfortunately, this occurred here in the UK on the back of the MMR vaccine controversy, a story many of you will undoubtedly be familiar with. In 1998, Andrew Wakefield published a scientific paper linking the MMR vaccine with autism, leading to a large drop in MMR vaccination rates. Despite the fact years later the paper had been widely discredited due to fraudulent results, ethical violations and financial conflicts of interest, uptake of the MMR vaccine had dropped significantly enough for outbreaks to occur, not only of measles, which was again declared endemic in the UK in 2008, but also mumps and rubella. Despite improved public communication and educational campaigns, some people still hold the belief that vaccines are dangerous. In particular in the US, the anti-vaccination campaign has gathered speed over the years, particularly in states such as California. Such campaigns claim that vaccines are unnatural and contain toxins such as mercury and arsenic. However, if you take the time to look at the facts, you will actually find that these chemicals are found in higher trace concentrations in your average organic apple than in the MMR vaccine. In the US, such campaigns have unsurprisingly led to a rise in measles cases. For example, in 2014, over 100 people became infected with measles in an outbreak in Disneyland. In response, California Governor Jerry Brown has recently enacted a bill that enforces vaccination of all school children with the MMR vaccine unless they have a valid medical exemption. This means that the state's previous personal belief exemption, as well as exemption on religious grounds, are no longer valid. This obviously brings up a number of ethical issues, including informed consent and parental rights, that could be discussed at length. However, I will finish off with repeating Mr Brown's statement in support of vaccination, which I believe sums up nicely why we should vaccinate. The science is clear that vaccines dramatically protect children against a number of infectious and dangerous diseases. While it is true that no medical intervention is without risk, the evidence shows that immunisation powerfully benefits and protects the community. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will continue to follow this four-part series, Vaccines from Concept to Clinic. In the next episode, we will talk about how we go about designing and testing new vaccines.